Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Well, thanks very much. Please be seated. Um, It's great to be here again. And if you don't know who I am, my name is uh, Craig Broman. I work with an organisation called Engage Work Faith, which you can see that's the uh, website for Engage Work Faith if you go there. And our uh, goal or our vision is to try and uh, engage people with the good news of Jesus within the workspace, which takes up so much of people's lives. Um, If you see on the next slide, I think we have uh, for March, we're doing a prayerful March uh, into March and into Easter, and each week uh, we're giving people ideas and tips and uh, 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 examples of how people go about their prayer life. So often in life, you know, we get told to pray, but we don't know how to. And we don't talk about it much together. So the idea of Prayerful March is each week to give you some ideas and inspiration and and stories and suggestions and prayers so that you can actually uh, engage with God in prayer and particularly in relation to people who don't know Jesus at at this point. I love the uh, Alpha um, suggestion of three people you think might come, three people who <laughs> you'd never think would come, and then three people who you come across who you don't even know their names. Um, it's, it's the idea of actually praying and prayerfully looking at what God's doing in your life. So, and the last slide, I think, is uh, the QR code that you can get to uh, our website on. Now, um, someone told me last week that they did this from their seat with their phone, and it actually worked, so... Um, <laughs> You're welcome to do that. Um, Don't do it on the ones outside because you'll just register that you're here today for COVID. Um, But anyway, I think it's on the um, welcome uh, uh, leaflet that you get uh, each week. So we're going to have a look today at Acts chapter 10. And you will need to get Acts chapter 10 out because it's a story and it goes on for about 40 verses. Um, But because it's a story, you'll find that we move through it very quickly Um, But it's a story about making outsiders insiders. So if you have your Bible and you can look up Acts 10 or uh, if you um, uh, have it on your phone, then this is the time to get it out. I've read the mission history of 90 years with Aboriginal people in Australia recently and uh, particularly in Arnhem Land. And in 1903, the Eastern African Cold Storage Company uh, set up in the Roper River area, and they were carving out a huge, huge economic um, pastoral empire. And the company was determined to exterminate all the Aboriginal people in the Roper River region. And I'd mistakenly thought that this had only ever happened in Tasmania, but I was wrong as I read this book. Listen to the speech that was given by the Bishop of North Queensland at the big missions conference in Melbourne in 1906. This is what he says. We have an airy way of speaking about Australia being a white man's country. But Australia, first of all, was a black man's country 
and I've never heard that a black man invited us to take his property away from him. A previous conference speaker has said the British were put by God in Australia to preach the gospel to the heathen. I've never heard a more complete condemnation of the stewardship of the Australian people. We have developed the country, we've civilised it, but we have certainly done very little to preach the gospel to the people we have dispossessed. The blacks have been shot and poisoned. They are now left to kill themselves with white vices, but very few have received at our hands either justice or consideration. And if you're Aboriginal here today, I'm sorry to raise this if it's hurtful, but I think it's really, really important for many of us to understand this. What I find fascinating about this is how somebody in 1906 can so disentangle themselves from their culture of the day to see with clarity and almost prophetically what we have taken a hundred years to come to realise to our shame. And they did it in a missionary conference. Prejudice doesn't really bother you until it affects someone close to you that you know. Listen to the diary reflection from one of the first missionaries to that Roper River. This is Rex Joint, and he says, Aborigines are treated worse than animals, sometimes even referred to as black animals or even worse. In years gone by, the natives have been shot down like game and hundreds killed in a spirit of revenge. I have met men that boast of shooting the poor, unprotected black just for fun. Now, clearly, when Christians in Melbourne heard the call of the bishop of what was happening in northern Australia, they sent people there. And there's no doubt that its primary purpose was to protect the Aboriginal people in Arnhem Land from being completely wiped out. Prejudice is ugly. It's brutal. It's a rejection that takes place. It's an opportunity that's withdrawn from somebody. It's a relationship that gets severed. And the criteria for cancelling is based on gender, on appearance, on behaviour, on colour, on nationality, on job or schooling. Now, here's the question. Why do some people shut other people out? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is it's a manifestation of damaged people coming up against a holy God. I mean, if you can't find approval with a holy God, then you work it out for yourself. And the easiest way to lift yourself up is by pushing other people down so that you always rise above them. Few groups were more deserving of the prejudice label in the first century than the Palestinian Jews. If you have a look now in Acts chapter 10 and you look at verse 28, here is Peter, one of the great hopes for the Christian message, leaving Jerusalem. And he says to people on his doorstep, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit them. So what began for him, uh, what began for the Jews as a concern to be distinctive people, mirroring their holy God, turned into a racially proud nation that despised outsiders. In fact, in Peter's day, 
The common understanding of what Gentiles were there for in the world was to fuel the fires of hell. On top of this, the person who's coming to ask him questions is Cornelius. And Cornelius is not just any old Gentile, he's leading the occupying forces that are subjugating the Jews at the moment in their own country. (laughs) There's a lot going on here as we come to Acts 10. Here's the original charter that was given to the Jews from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, and all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. So the question is, how did the Jews stray so far from that charter? Well, the answer is they twisted a doctrine of grace into a doctrine of favouritism. And that's the environment in which Peter was raised as a Jew, and yet he's got this mission mandate given to him in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 now, which says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Can you begin to see the huge hurdle here? How in the world is that message going to leave Jerusalem with these sorts of prejudices? If the Jews won't mix with the Gentiles, how will the good news go any further? It's going to stall. And that means the mission mandate to preach to people like you and I would never have happened. Now, you know, this is a recurring problem in Christian history. Every time people get excited and enthusiastic and authentic about mission, they come up against these sorts of battles. Since I've got involved with not-yet-Christians in the workplace, I've seen church culture in a whole new, you know, sort of view, perspective. Because when you bring somebody to a church service who you've been befriending and getting to know and working to and praying for, I mean, everything's very sensitive when, when you look at it through their eyes. I took one visitor to a church service and um, the person up the front, like me now, said to everybody, if you're a visitor here today, welcome, it's great that you're exploring Jesus. Well, when we got out of the service, my friend was really, really cross. They said, in one introductory sentence, that person up the front presumed my reasons for walking into the place today. And the reason I came was because you invited me. Westcare's mission in the CBD does a fantastic job feeding the needy in Adelaide streets. But their dilemma is that they can't find enough Christians to help them feed the needy or befriend them. I mean, how are those people ever going to be incorporated into church, let alone my friend that I tried to bring along? That's the dilemma of mission. In his book, What's Best Next by Matt Perman, he summarises the dilemma this way, and I find this fascinating. He says, sometimes... Christians have reduced morality to an avoidance ethic. Instead of seeing the Christian life as being proactive and abundant in doing good, it essentially shrinks to seeing it as avoiding the bad. Discipleship becomes the art of disinfecting Christians rather than sending them out for any real engagement in the world. Frankly, 
who gets excited about a life live hold up, lived hold up in a Christian bunker, allegedly safe from the world? Now, how in Acts 10 is God going to get the good news of Jesus out? Well, he gives two visions. One is to a Gentile, the other is to a Jew. So, have a look with me uh, at verses 1 to 8 at this vision that Cornelius the Gentile gets. Now, I've already said uh, Cornelius is a centurion. That's a commander of 100 Roman soldiers. He's a devout, God-fearing man. And along with the rest of his family, he's giving generously to those in need and he prays to God regularly. Now, clearly, God has noted all these good works. And according to verse 4, as a sign of sincere heart search for God, God is now sending him an angel to tell him how to find an evangelist to tell him about Jesus. Now, do you find that interesting? Why didn't the angel tell him about Jesus? Hmm. Just hold that question. Now, the second vision, while Cornelius sends off a search party, Peter is 51 kilometres away on his rooftop praying. He's hungry and God dishes up a vision to him that's calculated to disgust him. And it involves seeing a large sheet uh, drop down from heaven with every type of animal that a good Jew would never go near with a barge pole. And if they wanted to remain God's people, they'd, they'd never, ever eat anything like this. So look at Peter's protest when God tells him to kill and eat the things in the sheet. Verse 14, he says, Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean or unpure. Impure. A friend of mine went to the Philippines uh, and he had a really life-changing experience there. But one of the things that he told me about that absolutely disgusted him was that on every street corner there was a vendor selling raw eggs. And um, they were very expensive. And often to honour him as a guest, um, the, the people there would chip in together and they would buy him one of these expensive eggs, give it to him and then wait for him to eat it. The reason they were so expensive was because they were fertilised eggs and they were only days away from hatching. And in fact, the closer to hatching the egg was, the more expensive it got. And he said the first one he ate, he almost gagged at the whole process because he crunched the bones of the, the little hatchling in his mouth. Now, I think your reaction is probably similar to what Peter's reaction was to that sheet when it came down from God. How could God ask him to do such a putrid and filthy thing? While Peter was trying to make sense of the vision, Cornelius's men arrive at the front door. And in verse 20, you see him struggling with every Jewish fibre in his being to open the door and let them in. But amazingly, he does invite them in as guests overnight. And the next day, he puts in a full day's travel with them to go back to Cornelius's place. What will happen? You know, this is in the story. What will happen when the world of Cornelius and the world of Peter collide? Well, the following day in verse 24, he arrives in Caesarea. Cornelius is expecting him. He's got a little gathering party there, welcoming party. 
and he's feeling a bit nervous about the whole process. And as soon as Peter crosses the doorway, what does Cornelius do? He bows down before him in reverence. And immediately Peter rebukes him, verse 26, and he says, Get up. I'm only a man myself. Now, Cornelius may be a God-fearer, but he's certainly got an elevated view of humanity at this point. To the point where he's treating Peter as if he was divine. Now, that's something that will have to be transformed. And so will Peter's view of humanity. (laughs) After hearing the story of Cornelius, Peter learns the opposite lesson about humanity to Cornelius, not to reject someone as unclean and treat them like a dog. So here are two views of humanity that these two men have. And they must be transformed if the good news is going to spread further. You can't elevate human beings to a godlike status. You can't denigrate them to a dog-like status. And as fallen creatures, we have incredible propensity to do that with human beings around us. In our workplaces, in our families, on Facebook, on Twitter, so much grief, so much prejudice out there, so much injustice. So God must radically transform the way that these two men relate to each other, both the messenger and the one who's there to hear. So, what is the realisation Peter comes to? Well, you'll see it there in verses 34 to 48. Peter joins the dots, his vision about the unclean animals, God's command not to call anything impure, that he has made clean the Gentiles on his doorstep, Cornelius recounting this amazing vision. He can now see that God has been at work long before he arrived. And he's ready for God to realign the pegs. To understand the difference between what's cultural for him And what's real Christianity? And in verse 34, he says, I now realise, I didn't realise before, but now I get it. This is in fact what every follower of Jesus must keep doing for the rest of their lives. I I now realise, I didn't get it before. I mean, just because... You know the gospel. It doesn't mean you have all wisdom and insight into every part of it from that day. What is it that Peter realises? He says, I now realise that God does not show favouritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. This is Peter's big blind spot. The gospel was for all without restriction, and he hadn't seen that till now. And he now better sees people through God's lens. Please note, he's not saying that when God accepts all people, God is content to leave them where they are. I mean, if it was enough for Cornelius to you know, be connected to the Jews, that would have been, he wouldn't have needed to go to the synagogue. If, he, if it had been the synagogue that was enough for him, he wouldn't have been given a vision to go and find Peter. No, Peter was needed to instruct him about the unique role that Jesus plays in God's big plans and purposes. And Jesus must be preached to all without favouritism. Now, why is that? Well, Peter gives you his explanation in his sermon from verse 36 onwards. He preaches now to his Gentile audience. It's good to look at this. 
He tells them that the good news of peace through Jesus Christ is from the Lord of all. And if you skip down to verse 38, he went around doing good and healing all. They killed him. God raised him. Verse 41, he was not seen by all, but by witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Verse 42, Jesus commanded us to preach that he is the one God has appointed to judge all. Verse 43, and all the Old Testament prophets point to him that all who believe in him receive forgiveness of sins. All, 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 Peter says. The heart of Christianity is not religious activity, it's not a moral code, it's not being middle class, it's believing in a person whom God has sent and that person has been sent for all and will judge all. Because he became putrid and unclean and unholy and cursed and hanged on a tree for all. And if you're not a, if not a Christian here today, I hope you can see what this is saying. You might write God off, but he, he's certainly not writing you off. And if you're a Christian here today, everyone must hear about him because he's come for all people. We may write some people off, we may unconsciously apply a selection process, but I now realise that God does not show favourites, does not have favourites. We think the gospel will only work on certain people in certain contexts, Peter goes, it works on all. A while ago I was singing in church and um, spontaneously teared up and I thought, well, what's triggering that? Well, two seats in front of me, sorry it wasn't the music, but um, with two seats in front of me there was a man and he had been introduced to me six years earlier when I was a pastor at that church and he had become a Christian. He'd been living on the street, he was captive to his addictions and just close to Christmas he'd become a Christian and he was introduced to me as his potential pastor for the new year. And I was hesitant. I held back. Because I had a congregation, a lot of single women in a congregation, I thought, this man's going to cause devastation. He's going to come in. He's not here because he's become a Christian. He's here because he knows there's a lot of women here. Now I was watching this man in front of me six years on, and he was cuddling a young boy who, for whom he had become the stepfather of. And he had his wife in the other arm. And he had rescued those two people from an extremely bleak future as a mother, a single mum, with little support and a child. And I was overwhelmed by two things, the transformational power of Jesus and the shame that I had for not realising it. Not realising it. If God were to drop a sheet right down to you now from heaven, who would be in it? What sort of people would be a challenge for you? Maybe it's the strident diversity 
you know, advocate in the office. Maybe it's the foul-mouthed, promiscuous party animal at uni. Maybe it's the grumpy old man on the Zimmer frame with his ever-increasing list, ever list of complaints. Maybe it's the person who's career-obsessed, who you went through school with, who's shot past you and has everything. What prejudices prevent you from sharing the gospel and spreading it? Because the truth is, those people have no hope if the gospel doesn't move beyond Jerusalem. Here at Ross Trevor, I think it's amazing to see the multicultural nature of this congregation. some point, you realised you needed to do that. You looked around at the area, you saw it changing, and you moved beyond safe territory. If we're not prepared to move beyond safe territory, it's the surest sign that we deny the power of the gospel. Paul says in Ephesians 2.14 that the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Greeks is totally torn down. So, what people are absent from your prayer lists, from your calendars, from your church? Who is in your sheet? Be honest with yourself because I don't think anybody has an empty sheet. Our own prejudices cause us to write off some people as too hard, too far gone, not worth it, not clean enough. And it's no accident that God has put you where you live and where you work, where messenger and hearer constantly are being brought together for divine appointments until Christ comes back. And that's how the gospel gets to the end of the earth. Generally not by angels and visions. Which people are in your sheet? I'm really challenging you to think about that question over this week for yourself. And read the chapter again of Acts 10. God says, don't call anything impure that I have made clean. So why don't we try and practice this now? And make a commitment. Let's stand and say this verse that's on the screen. So please stand with me and let's say this as a commitment to that. Together, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism. While you're standing, let me pray. Jesus, Lord of all, who healed all, died for all, rose for all, and will judge all. Transform our view of humanity and please root out our blind prejudices and give us humility to accept all people so that nothing may prevent the spread of your good news through our lives, through our church, through our state, through this world. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.